Hi, I'm Andy Bush. Welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a journey into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. I'm joined as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the Scary as Hell Scarred for Life books. Go get them now. Every week we'll be speaking to a special guest. He'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that has literally terrified them since childhood. Uh, Before we say hello to this week's guest, we've got a hell of a guest for you. Very quickly, let's just look at one of your scars, a listener's scar. You guys have got in touch with stuff that's freaked you out when you were kids. Hi to Lee Rand, who's got in touch. Contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. It says, guys, The Enchanted Castle, 1979 production from the most spine-chilling organisation, the BBC. I was four when this was shown, and it has haunted me ever since. The Ugly Wugglies. Here's an extract from Wikipedia. Guy Fawkes-style dummies that they made to swell the audience numbers at one of their play performances come to life. Horrible. Actors with terrifying masks on. Thanks, BBC. Love the books and the podcast, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lee. Amazing message. Uh, You guys got any memories of the Ugly Wugglies at all, either of you two? Yes. Actually, Enchanted Castle is actually horrible uh, because these Ugly Wugglies are brought to life. And the thing that scares me the most is the kids, because the kids lure the ugly wugglies out into the garden, into like a, a, a crypt, and entomb them forever in the crypt. Oh my and bloody hell! It's, it's yeah. So the scariest thing is not the ugly wugglies; it's the children. Amazing. Well. We love hearing your scars. Do keep getting in touch with those. They're brilliant. Uh, But our next guest, let's get them on, uh, is an award-winning actor, writer, producer, director, and magician. His much-fetid career began with the groundbreaking League of Gentlemen, which won a British Academy of Television Award, a Royal Television Society Award, and the Golden Rose of Montreux. He's also appeared in shows as diverse as Doctor Who, Peter Kay's Car Share, and The Great British Bake Off. He's no stranger to stage and film, appearing in horror films such as A Field in England, and Borley Rectory, and on stage, uh, had leading roles in The Producers, Absent Friends, and many more. As a writer, he co-created Inside Number 9 and Psychoville, a man of many talents who could be... We could be here all day uh, with this, so let's just introduce the very talented Reese Shearsmith and say welcome to Scarred for Life. Uh, Reese Shearsmith, uh, it's a real honour to welcome you to Scarred for Life, and the thing that we, we, we just can't get over, staring on this video chat as we are, is what an amazing... Um, loft or attic you have have you ever been complimented on the attic before reese i have i have had people comment on it yeah it is a uh sort of my safe space where i creep into and um all my horrors are all tucked away up here behind the door the door is actually a um bookshelf so once i'm in it looks like i've gone and then you can't get in and you press a button and then the door opens (laughs) so i can get away from it wow that's amazing um Panic room. <laughs> it's a panic. It's just like an elaborate panic room. But with all nice things. Well, all mine, I think they're nice. But yeah, some people might think they're all a bit strange. Yeah. No, no, it's amazing. I mean, just talk us through some of the things we can see in the background. I've always wondered this when, when someone like yourself is in TV and film. Do, do you, yeah. Are you allowed to kind of take mementos of things? I from have things? took lots. Yeah, I've took lots of things from um, productions over the years. There's little items and some massive things. There's a huge head right there, which you can't see from Psychoville, which was a, a big Mr. Punch head. There's the little Mr. Punches on there. That's Bella Lugosi. That's Slappy peeping out from behind the zigzag lady. That is the homunculus from the League of Gentlemen, which I've captured. And there's Fat from the film Magic, Anthony Hopkins. Model. Wow. wow. The cabinet full of magic tricks. That's a painting that Mark did that's, that was on the Demeter when he did um, his Dracula. It's a Christopher Lee, and then we've got Christopher Lee, Peter Cushion, and Vincent Price up there, as well as Houdini. So lots of little people. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, and Dave, Dave, how are you doing there? Because obviously, one of the first episodes we did, Dave shared his um, um, quite triggering <clears throat> fear of uh, ventriloquist dummies, and there's quite ah. there's a few in shot, as we can <laughs> see there. I, I, yes, I'm quite disturbed by the <laughs> Anthony Hopkins story from Magic. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. Although it. Uh, I don't think it looks quite as evil as Mr. Paul Anshin, I'll be yeah, honest with you. that's true. We've got here, um, this is one yeah. of the... Oh, man. oh no, that's worse. Oh, God. That's, much, that's much worse. That is much worse. That is, <laughs> this that is, is Chloe or Radcliffe from the First League of Gentlemen tour that we did. Wow. So wow. Range of it. We had it in, she was in a singing and dancing routine. So I kept her. She's a delight. Keep, it's like cat's eyes, it's horrid. It's like um, Ro- Rosie and Jim, the kids' TV show, <laughs> yeah. has gone horribly exactly. wrong. Exactly. Rosie and Jim inspired, very much so, yeah. 
Uh, so, so Reese, have you always been drawn to the unusual, even from a young age? Would you say? Yes, I think I was safe to say that I was a, a monster kid, as John Landis would call me, and I, you know, like a lot of us, was inside reading Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen King, whilst with the curtains drawn, whilst everyone was playing outside. My mum and dad would come and say, "They're all knocking for you. Go outside and play." And I'm like, "No." So uh, I was often to be found, play, you know, making, I mean, strange early forays into Mike Flanagan territory, making the uh, removable floorboards from the Telltale house and putting a body underneath it when I was about 10. Wow. So uh, things like that. <laughs> I wrote Stephen King and he wrote back to me, he was just about to write Christie, but he oh, was wow. very nice. He, he, he was very encouraging about, because I said, I don't know why I, I wrote, I don't know what I said to him, but uh, yeah, he, he, he told me he, he was writing one about a haunted car and that transpired to be Christine. So um, it's amazing to get a little postcard from a man that I thought, how could it, he possibly, for this brief moment in time, he, you know, he took time out of his day to write back to me and it was, it was very moving. It was great. And I got Peter Cushing wrote to me, Christopher Lee wrote to me. So, and I eventually met Christopher Lee. I couldn't believe it. So that was a real... Um, you know, pinch yourself going to lunch with Christopher Lee at, at the behest of John Landis, who is now my friend. I mean, you'd wow. never quite believe this life that I've cut into. You know, it's, it's an amazing, privileged position that I've got to met, meet a lot of people that I've admired. And, and my life now is really emulating and trying to dig into the things that used to scare me. And, I, and our telly is all the stuff that we loved not hopefully not ripped off, but certainly, you know, inspired by. And I think we do, we try to make the same kind of telly and that's, it's, it's great. And I, I do sort of pinch myself every day that I'm still living an adult life, but really I'm still completely immersed as you can see in being 15. <laughs> and then if you're in the business of, of scaring like you are, um, yeah. is it harder to be scared yourself when you, when you kind of think you, you're approaching it from almost a professional angle or oh, I see what they've done there, I like what they've done there, that's a unique mechanism. Does it, th is it harder to scare you now than it used to be, Reese? I, I think um, I, I've certainly got more squeamish. I, I don't, I, I'm, I watched them um, talk to me through my fingers the other week when I went to see it and it was like, it's so horrible. And the Saw films and, and a lot of the t torture type of films I can't, they're watching really that you know they might be good and a lot of fright fest they cheer all the gore but i i'm sort of like i don't like really to see it now but um to scare people yes i mean i am fascinated by the mechanics of horror films and how they work and how certain things will work and how things are overused i went to see the exorcist the new one and i thought it, it was fine but it did it, it suffered from being a, a collection of so many things that we've seen so many times before and I, and it was like I I admired the fact that it was sort of trying to do the same again, and it had that feeling of the original and the editing and the savage ed editing of some of the moments. But I just thought it's it suffers from the fact that we've seen it so many times, and yet, of course, many horror films, run the mill horror films, are made up of your classic um, nuts and bolts jump scares, which you sort of see coming a mile off, but you, they sort of work in a way, and they surprise you. I'm always fascinated by when something new comes along and for whatever reason I'm it makes my skin crawl or it does make me jump and I think what's what's done that what yeah. is it about the way that's been filmed that's so creepy and there were a few things like that in uh, the new the recent um, Conjuring films that were very well put together some of them you know and the, there was I think the second Conjuring when the first sighting of the nun comes along from down the corridor it was yeah. a really first encounter with her and um, I think, again, that comes from that David Lynch thing of things being far away and you can't make, quite make out what it is in, in the shadows. And the sound in that had a lot to do with it as well. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting when you're in a horror-type situation filming one because it's not scary. And, and I, when I took over Andy Nyman, who I know you've had on the podcast doing ghost stories, I was terrified watching that. And then I was in it. I played his part as Mr Goodman for three months in the West End. And it was like... It wasn't scary anymore. It was sort of the, the um, being backstage of it, seeing the, the running of it was, was great. But it was a lovely thing to be at the helm of the scares. But suddenly, I didn't suddenly feel the, that 
spell had been broken because I was looking behind the curtain. Dave? I think uh, scares for me are mostly psychological. I watched the film once. I can't remember which one it was. It was absolutely terrifying up to the point where you saw the monster, saw the ghost, whatever it was. And yeah. I think the psychology of horror works on me far better than, for example, gore. I don't think gore does anything for me. It's like a sex scene. It's like I don't need that bit. I could just I could have the psychology of it up to that point and then just yeah. you know, cut away, cut away. I think psychology is far more important. So it's it's the anticipation of the scare that's more scary than the jump itself. The jump itself just annoys me. Right, I yeah. And yeah, I get what you mean. I mean it does some of the more deeply disturbing books that I've read of of Stephen King, for example, like the Pet Cemetery is such a horrible, and and The Shining, in fact, the original book of The Shining is so, it's moving and it's it's horrible because there's peril with the main character and the psychology of what they're really about. With Stephen, with Pet Cemetery being about a study of grief, really, of when the boy dies, it's horrible. And then when, and Jack Torrance tussling with this demon that is is alcoholism, and the manifestation of that through the hotel, and how that becomes this big monster that takes over him. And, and the tragedy of the book of The Shining is that you really get the sense that it's not Jack Torrance at all that's doing it. It is the Overlook and it's the this the ghosts of that that are overtaking him. And so it's it's tragic. I remember the ending when he's smashing his own head in and the Overlook's about to blow because he's forgotten to turn off the boiler. And um, you get, and, and, and I think that he writes that there's a glimpse back of Jack in there and it's, heartbreaking because you think yes it's not him it's not just he's gone mad which is a little bit what people's criticism of the film of the shining is that jack nicholson is mad from the start but yeah. um he's great and I, and I love the film and i wouldn't ever take away from what that what's good about that depiction of it i know stephen king didn't like it but um both work and i think yeah the psychology of getting into the character and feeling for the character and then having things happen to that character that where it begins to matter, doesn't it? And then the, the stakes are raised, and you care. And then, as soon as you care, you've you're invested, and 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 the whole story will come to life and work. That was the thing that we, we've just been talking about: the whole gore versus psychological versus making your skin crawl. Think about horror, and I've been obsessed with horror since I was about three, and I went through every phase in my teenage years. I was a teenager, slap bang, in the video nasty era. So it was all about gore yeah. for me. And now I'm like you, Reese. I can't stand it. I, I watched Midsummer over two nights because there's a scene in it, an image in it that knocked me sick to the point where I switched it off and thought, I've got to come back to this right. tomorrow and just watch Michael Benty's Potty Team Time or something <laughs> to take the taste out of my mouth. But um, it's the little things. It's the psychology. I know this got... It's a film that was very divisive at the time. was the first paranormal activity. And loads of younger people I knew because I used to work in Forbidden Planet, most of the customers said it was just boring, rubbish. Where's the scares? There's a scene in it where a door opens by itself, and I remember clutching like the chair I was in, because that can happen. Yeah. But Freddy Krueger's never going to happen to me, so why should I be scared of Freddy Krueger? So it's, it's the thing that's... I remember watching The League of Gentlemen for the first time with an ex-girlfriend of mine in 1999. She loved it, we both loved it, but I got something else out of it that she didn't. I've watched the first episode and thought, these guys grew up with Amicus. These guys grew up with Shiver and Shake and Monster Fun. These guys grew up with public information films. And I just I just felt like you. it was the same childhood that I'd had, that you'd had, which obviously now we know you yeah. had. So it's the first thing I remember seeing that tapped into the what we now call the Scarred for Life era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we drew on so much of it. And, you know, and it is all our collective childhoods and yours undoubtedly and it, it was just all that stuff that was taken for granted at the, when we grew up and it was all so dark and so um matter of fact as well i think that's the thing it was mundane and it wasn't gothic and, um yeah that's why all the you know the the, the tv hammer house horrors were always so more anamicus actually than hammer because hammer was gothic and sort of once removed because it was in castles and you know you didn't but then the housing estates that a lot of Hammer House horror work were in, in Great Missenden places, it, it, it felt very real. And, and that's why, you know, that Stephen King always talks about the um, ghost in the radiator being far more scary than the monster in the, in the castle or whatever it might be, because it's, it, like you say, it could happen. Your house is, 
where things get you, which is why a, a lot of the times um, home invasion story films and, and stories are horrible because that absolutely taps into that worst fear. Yeah. I remember Andy Nyman in the, the first bits of ghost stories, he talked about what actually scares you is the Professor Goodman and he says it's death and dying, but it's also that creak in the middle of the night on the stairs. And it's the yeah. fact, and, and I've always wanted to write something about just sitting in the bed when you're in your bed and thinking someone's in the house. And it's, you can't get more frightened than that. It's absolutely terrifying. And, I, and that feeling of, uh, as a kid, having that and wanting to scurry into the mum and dad's bedroom and just wake them up and just say, Will you check downstairs? I've heard a noise. Never more, more scared than that. I mean, most horror films, let's face it, I don't think you're ever that scared. So when one actually does work, it's extraordinary. It's a brilliant sort of thrilling feeling, but also terrifying because you rarely have it. So when actually something does unnerve you, it's it's an, it's a really unsettling <laughs> as it's meant to be. But it's it's more unsettling because it never normally happens. I think so. Something that does that is to be cherished. I think you you have a superb talent for playing unsettling characters, uh, Reese. What what do you think that is? What, where does that come from? And um, can you kind of define what it is that that makes you so good at portraying characters like that? Where you're not quite sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, I, I've often, I mean, some of the comedic ones I've played have often, the comedy engine of them is that they are very angry all the time. I play the, the persona of Reese often that I'm really angry. I'm not really. That's, not, that's another act, really. The truth is I am very content with my life and, and very happy, but uh, it's always funny in, in things to turn up the dial of being disproportionately rageful. And I've done that in a lot of my characters as well and i think and then sometimes I've, when i played more sinister characters then it's the it's the lecture stillness and that sort of detached switched offness that um can sometimes yeah. settle and uh, or the unpredictability of a person there was never i mean one of the scarred for life's choices that i dismissed and that's because I thought, no one knows this person but he was the pe teacher the terrifying um unpredictable nature of the and we all had a teacher probably that was sort of on the one hand you didn't know what you're going to get they were like psychotic they'd be yeah. great and friend, your friend yeah. and lovely <laughs> and then other days a different person and terrifying for it and it's like you're on absolute eggshells because you thought what which one am i going to get and that feeling at school was also another one of these things that just as in the modern parlance is triggering <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't know what what you're going to be like it's terrifying to think i'm going to be on the receiving end of it and the betrayal of when the teachers liked you or you thought you got on with a certain teacher and then they're really horrible to you one day so wounding and terrifying hurtful because you just think i thought he liked me i was on in the good books <laughs> but then all bets are off of course and they probably did it to us up like don't think you're my friend i'm not your friend <laughs> <laughs> Keep you on your toes. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, I mean, another previous guest, Jeremy Dyson, uh, was just telling us how uh, League of Gentlemen was such a democratic process and how well you guys all worked together. I mean, it, it did sound like, you know, like you know, I, I interview a lot of bands and so on, on on with the radio show, and they always end yeah. up kind of falling out in the end or one of them turns into a big head and doesn't want the others involved anymore. But you guys have kind of, I don't know, you've kind of navigated through this relationship and such success without anyone falling out or anyone trying to start their own band to use that kind of phrase do you know what I mean yeah I think we we did because we were it was going all right I think had it been um failing or we were finding it hard or it wasn't working out and we weren't getting anywhere it would have been more fractious maybe but because it was every step of the way it was like oh this is this is where we went to we went to Edinburgh and we did the shows and I don't I remember being sort of I, I don't ever, I don't feel that we had a master plan, but we were all wanted to do it. We enjoyed doing it, but I don't think we thought ahead to the next, to the 10 years that it would take of our lives where, where we would go to Edinburgh and we would get a radio show and then we would do a TV show. It was just each step of the way we were in it, doing it and enjoying doing it. And it was working and people that weren't our friends came to see it in Edinburgh. And that was like, a, it was so like a valediction of us actually it, it being funny in its own right and not just polite friends coming again and again. And we were very careful, I think, because there were four of us submitting writing to make sure that everyone got a, a bit of it. Everyone had to have a quarter of Royston Basie and we all had to have a, a, a share of that collective world. So 
because there were what felt like quite a lot of us and it was the hardest part of the league really was the day sitting down with all the material and going right how do we pull it all together and make a yeah. story of course there wasn't really a story it was just collective sketches but we had an overarching thing that made it feel like you were flitting around a town um but yeah we were um overly careful i think to not uh upset because it's nothing you can't play you can't feel funny if there's any awkward feeling in the room so it was it was to be absolutely actively avoided you know to nurture it and be very careful about that I mean, League of Gentlemen, hugely successful. Inside number nine has taken that to the next level. Is it is it nine series so far? How many series have you guys done on, on Inside Number Nine? We've done eight series and we've just we are just now in the start of pre-production for the ninth and final series. So we thought we would get to nine and I mean we knew, we thought we'd do one and we never knew it would get constantly recommissioned and yet and I have another ten years of my life taken up doing this one thing. Yeah. I mean it's not one. By the end, we'll have done 55 different stories. Wow. Does so, that make it harder to write because you, you've explored so many different areas and ways of doing it? Because, you know, you, it's very versatile. You try different stuff and do different things. It must be, the ground must be harder to find n- new avenues these days. Yeah. What do you think? Of course. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> devastating uh, irony of uh, using a, a lifetime of ideas because... We know the nuts and bolts of each episode and what they draw on and what they do and the sort of mechanics of the twists and everything and the storytelling. So it does get hard to think genuinely, have we done that before and done it better elsewhere? If we come up with an idea, we think, oh, that's quite good. And then we go, oh, it's a bit like that one. We've done it already, really. So the bar, as far as we being creators of it and not wanting to repeat ourselves, which we've always tried to not do, is is hard, yeah. So, um yeah, we're going to get to nine, filming nine this, the end of this year and the start of next year. And that will be, I think, it for Inside Number Nine. But, you know, it was a long run, a, an anthology series where we're in a world where they don't do them. So we were so delighted that they wanted to bring such a thing back into the world. Uh, what do you think is the scariest episode that you guys have done on Inside Number Nine? My personal favourite, Sardines and 12 Days of Christine. What would you, what would you say is the scariest one of the lot? That's hard. I think, I think some people found um, cold comfort quite scary, and that was interesting because that was the one in in the um, the helpline, which was all the single the cameras, just fixed cameras, and it was like Zoom meeting, and you could see various cameras fixed, and they were. What was scary was the sort of leaning in, not knowing in that way where you're watching found footage and you or watch this ghost appear and you're watching on YouTube this clip and you think, when is it coming? I can't see anything. What am I meant to see? What am I looking at? And the dread and the anticipation of just looking at a screen, like the paranormal activities that are just nothing, nothing, nothing. And then this, a door will open or a, the bed sheets will get pulled back. It's that leaning in, waiting for the scare, which is like, is like a reverse engineering of a jump scare in a, in a way, because you sort of, it, and the, the playing field is so, um, mundane and flat and I think that was what was great about that first paranormal activity it really felt like you were in a, in the real world but that was a scary one I think some of the darker ones that um, people have picked up on have been the more mundane again not the gothic ones we've done ones like the harrowing which was set with me and Helen McCrory's sort of weird vampiric brother and sister and that was very gothic and it felt like the monsters in a way and it was more over ghost trainee horror but then we've done more psychological, nasty ones, like the one that we did called To Have It To Hole, where Steve was had a woman in the basement. And it was really horrible because it was very ordinary and dreary. Like It appeared to be about a dreary marriage. And yet all the while he had this terrible dark secret literally underneath the, the house. And that was a very dark one. And I don't know whether it was scary. It was sort of scary when you knew the reality of him being such a cold reptilian monster. But uh, yeah, we it, the fun of, has been exploring and being allowed to so many different types of storytelling storytelling and how to tell a story on telly you know we've used the medium of television um as much as we we could in in without ever trying hoping i hope that we have it hasn't felt like it's gimmick of the week you know we've wanted always wanted to do it with the intention the the reason behind it being a valid reason like when we did the silent episode 
in series one and quite night in we were robbing the house so it was like a silent comedy but there was a reason why we weren't talking so it was like there was a valid reason within it to allow the mechanics of the story to work i was going to say the the great thing i love about inside number nine and black mirror is that i grew up in the golden age of the great british anthology we were swamped with them it was obviously tales of the unexpected and hammer house of horror Thriller, armchair thriller, Shadows of Fear, one of the forgotten ones, which is just stunning. The Night Gallery. And I thought, Night yeah, Gallery, yeah. yeah. The Frightened Scorpion Tales. I thought, yeah. Scorpion, yeah, there's so many of them. I thought when Inside, Black Mirror became big, but when Inside Number 9 exploded the way it did for BBC Two, I thought the way things tend to work is another channel, another uh, kind of streaming service, whatever, wants their own little slice of the pie. But it feels more like you guys and Charlie Brooker are just left to your own devices. But the anthology show never came back, and I was kind of quite sad about that because I understand you need new sets, new cast. Yeah. You've got to write a whole new story. But I do miss those Absolutely. completing one episode things. It's brilliant. strange that there isn't more of them. I think it's because it's hard. They're hard to do good ones, you know. And part of the fun of it is the. the you know, you wouldn't want to be accused of it if you're the writer of it, but the hit and miss nature of what appeals to you week in, week out, you know, and that you don't know what you're going to get. It's like, it is like a bag of revels. And it's, I met up with Charlie and we had a yeah. meal and it was like a support group for people that write anthologies now. We just <laughs> moaned how hard it was. Anthologist <laughs> Anonymous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It was lovely to spot war stories about how hard it is to do, but um, maybe that's why it is. When I guess if you've got teams and teams of writers, you've got that's one way of getting through it. But um, it's just been me and Steve in a room for 10 years doing all this, all these stories, and that's given it tonally a thing because that's and we're in them, of course, and that gives it a continuity. Yeah. But um, that, um, I think it, I am we are proud of it, and the very fact that we've we've got this far in with, and I don't think that the I mean, that, you know, there'll be people that say they should have stopped at series two. Or, but, you know, we, we're still very happy with the, the amount of um, invention that we're, we, we're still injecting into them. And I, I think that we would have stopped if we thought, no, we really can't keep it up, you know. So, but the opportunity is, is lovely to each week have a clean slate. It's, that's the tyranny, of course, because you're then left with how do you do it again the next week? But um, yeah. one of the good things about it is you can have these great highs and people can die and there's extraordinary endings. In the world of um, six half hours about the same thing, everything has to reset, of course. And you at that square one, you can't really have these huge um, main characters dying on these things, twisting on their heads or whatever. So, you know, I think if we then, if we yeah. ever do anything else after this, which I hope we will, It'll be an interesting exercise to do longer storytelling because we've done 28 and a half minutes for 10 years. So it'll be, it'd be nice to try mm. to flex our muscles and do a, something that you know, is on a bit longer for, uh, in the way it tells its story. And a bit more like um, a big narrative, you know, like we did with Psychoville. That was really a reaction to doing the league for so many years. And it was sketches. And then we thought, let's do an ongoing story. And that was what that was. And then we went back to play for today's really that's what the, the uh, number nines are so uh one more quick question before we get to your scars reese uh in terms of the way you and steve write do you do you do you meet up at a service station and and uh and chat or do you meet at a cafe or is it all emailing how do you guys write together we have a little office in uh nearby like five minutes from each of us in muswell hill in north london and we go there and we write nine to five and sometimes we buy Two o'clock, we can't think of, we're sick of it. And we just think it's not working today. Let's forget it. So, um, and we've done that for right before Psychoville. It's been, we've had it for years. This, um, this wow. very front room, nothing in it, just a table and Steve's laptop on it. And we'll, there's not even a kettle in it. It's so plain. Bloody hell. And we'll go out for lunch, often to the same place. And sometimes things will happen in during the lunch that we will, think could that be a number nine and uh sometimes things have happened and they have transpired and have made their way after lots of talking into a storyline but there is that's the key i think a lot of talking we really um 
will have, will have read something or something about, you know, Steve literally one day was walking to the office and he saw a shoe, a black shoe on the floor. Um, and he, he, he brought me back out of the office to go and look at it. And he said, look at how weirdly how it's just placed on the floor like that. What's the story behind that? And then we thought, could that be a story? And we began just talking Amazing. and made it into a story. And um, other times we'll have a great, what we think is a good ending and think, how do we get there? What could that be? Other times we've got a great ending. And as we get there, we think that's becoming too obvious and then we've got to change it. So uh, we're always trying to work out just the best intriguing story and how what you think you're watching ends up not what you're watching. And every few minutes you're sort of, you're leaning into it because it's taking you on a journey that you never thought you were going to go on. And just to try and keep you hooked. So much telly is, it's just on in the background and you just don't care and you go and make a sandwich and come back and they'll tell you what's happened in the last five minutes because there'll be a recap <laughs> because that's what telly's like. And we just want for you, it requ- you're required to stay and watch it and, and spend it, a bit more attention on our things and that's not for everyone you know where i'm not saying all telly should be like that but ours is and i and it, 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 i really like it that they did a study and they showed us it about um people on twitter whilst our program was on most programs in fact they put them in the corner a hashtag talk about our program whilst it's on and um ours it flatlined whilst they watched it and then at the end it spiked and they all went back on oh, it wow. so they were watching it Imagine that. <laughs> Actually <laughs> watching it. <laughs> talking about talking about something yeah, afterwards, well, like we used to. Yeah, like they used to do, exactly, yeah. So um, we were very proud of that. We thought, oh, we've grabbed their attention in this world where you simply can't, and it's not geared up to anymore, you know. We talked a few years back of having a special chair in the theatre where you could tweet from it. I mean, what world it's are we in? Awful. Oh, God. It's awful, isn't it? I know. Oh, God. Oh, God. Absolutely. Terrible. Well, um, let's let's get down to it then, uh, Reese. This podcast works in that you bring three things with you that have scarred you for life. Uh, could we yeah. please get your first scar, Reese? Yes. Well, I mean, God, it's so hard to do, isn't it? There were so many. Can I tell you some of the ones I dismissed? Yes, please do. Yeah, Here's yeah. some that never made it. Some that never made it. Mr. Blobby's feet. <laughs> Sounds like a band. I know. Mr. Mr. Bobby on Nell's house party had the most horrible, dirty, mucky black feet, and that, that absolutely scarred me for life. And I, so I didn't pick him. The other one was um, Miss Frank Spencer's neighbour in Some Mothers Do Have Them. He had a name. I went and looked who it was. It was, it was called. It was played by Glyn Edwards, and he was Mr. Lewis from for a, a many years in in. Oh, it was Mr. Yes. Spencer, oh. and his rage against Frank <laughs> used to absolutely kill me. It was like again, it was that school teacher thing of, oh, please don't tell him off, please don't tell him off. So whenever he was getting into these scrapes, this man would be his absolute blood boiling. Maybe it's where I got my characters from, but that <laughs> being on the receiving end of it, you <laughs> my blood run cold. So anyway, there were two that I didn't pick, but my first one, in no particular order, is. I was always a big fan of the two Ronnies. And um, one night on the two Ronnies, and it's not Phantom Raspberry Blower, which of course was brilliant, but um, there was um, one of their musical numbers. It came on, I think they, they did a fairy sketches and then the last bit, and it was, it was Sweeney Todd, but it was Teeny Todd. It was called Teeny Todd. And, and um, Ronnie Corbett was Sweeney, but he was called Teeny because he was little. And he had like yeah. shock of ginger hair. And um, Ronnie Barker was Mrs. Lovett in drag. And it was the most grisly thing I've ever seen. I was just remember watching this thing. I loved it because I was all into horror and it was all, it began with like bats and um, mist. Um, but then it became really, really horrible because there was, <laughs> it was the cutting of the throats was like Tim Burton. <laughs> and it was on like four past hell. Literally cutting throats and going down this trapdoor into the thing and making the pies, and it was the, the whole story, but done with two Ronnies doing it. I learned from a barber called Slacker. He shaved with high speed and a leer. First lesson was, what's this here, Razor? The second was, where's that there ear? Oh! <laughs> it was such a strange thing. <laughs> and then I remember it absolutely locking, you know, it was burned into my memory. And then I remember waiting however long it was for a repeat, because of course this is before you could record anything. 
and it came on again. It must have been a year or two later when it was on the repeat of this series, and it went on and on. And week after week, I was thinking, this definitely is the series that's got Teeny Todd in it. And it got to the point where it was there was only one left, and I thought, well, this has to be it. And it got to the point where it should have been Teeny Todd, and it was a top of the pops skit that they did, and they'd swapped it out. Obviously, too grisly for telly, and I've never seen it since. Oh wow! Wow. So it's not, it's not you can't, like you repeat. can't find it on you. You know, normally thirty seconds. If you can't remember anything, look on YouTube. You'll you'll have the answer. You'll see it again after t- maybe twenty seconds of looking. This I can't. Do, find. do you think that the, the? Do you think the key to to the scare with this Reese is? You know, sometimes when you have people, we were just talking earlier on about trusting and never know where you are with the teacher, and they might turn or, or whatever. Yeah. But like having someone that you you used to for comedy or Jape suddenly turning. I mean, do you remember when Matthew Kelly from Stars in Their Eyes did a? He was a he was a murderer in a, in a, in a, a drama, and he was yes. it was terrifying because yes. you're just used to him being uh, tonight, Matthew. I'm going to be, and then the next thing you know, he was this kind of yeah. cold killer. And it's like something about maybe when you go from which which is something that inside Number Nine, everything that you guys do works brilliantly. Is that kind of fine balance between comedic and really unsettling, and you don't know where you are with something. something yeah, in that maybe. Yeah, I mean it's pushes all the buttons of all the things that in the, in the sort of ingredients of the things we do now uh, is is at the forefront with the fact that we've, um, you know, we do, it was a comedy horror sketch really, but what was yeah. very surprising about it was, was how grisly it was, how gory it was, and how sinister Ronnie Corbett especially was with his shock of hair and his white pasty face just doing a horror thing and it was like yes this is i shouldn't be seeing it i love that he's doing it but it's also really <laughs> a hard watch <laughs> so that was my is, is it on the dv it's on the dvds you think so i've got the entire oh, series on dvd you probably also find it instantly dave i i, I want to get the dvds out i'm going to watch every single one dave on. if you yes. find that there must yeah. be a way of ripping the video yeah, I think so. yeah. if you can yeah i've got I've got the whole Make it into a fire. Amazing. Be traumatised all over again, Reese. Yeah. About that. I was going to ask you actually what you know. Obviously, part of what you, you know, big part of what you do is is comedy. What we, we talked about the kind of scary stuff that you're watching when you're growing up. What what comedy wise, you know, did you watch was in your formative years and had a big effect on you? Well, I don't know about four. I mean, I remember always admiring and liking the actor, the great comedy actors like. Um, Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Barker, and Ronnie Corbett. I mean, I thought Corbett was always very good, and I, lo- I loved um, Leonard Rossiter in Rising Damp and um, Reggie Perrin, and Victoria Wood and Alan Bennett. And there was a lot of the plays as well that I would see and think, oh, they're sort of different. They've they're darker and they're a cut above, but they they resonated with me because there were a lot of Northern voices in there, yeah. and it chimed with me as being authentic, you know. So, um, and Peter Sellers, huge fan of of him and his oeuvre and the work uh, Kubrick film-wise but uh, so a, a real mix but also just all the stuff that was on it was we never had much choice did we it was th- there was three sides it was um a low low and um Heidi High as well in the mix as, of, of all that but the things I sort of were drawn to were the more sort of characterful stuff that I felt like was um and the wordplay of ske- of some sketches as well a lot of David Wenick's uh, sketches that he would write for the, the Rons I used to enjoy and think, oh, that's so clever. How are they doing that? And I, I would sometimes, I, I remember recording sometimes the audio of, of them like people did with Pythons. But I was a bit too young for telly Python. I, I knew Python from the films more. But um, then I went back, obviously, and, and consumed it all. But yeah, that and The Goons as well, Spike Milligan. I didn't. I was too young for Q. QC, but I used to I used to try and find those. So um, yeah, a lot of the traditional stuff, but yeah, mostly I think the sort of the comedy actors because I, I never thought I would want could be an actor. I was always more into drawing and art when I was little, and that was what I was going to do. But slowly over time, it was the thing that I kept going back to and thinking that, and then I eventually had the crossroads of whether it should be art or drama school, and I picked Bretton Hall, which is a drama degree. Because yeah. I thought, well, I, I can't do it. I might be able to teach it, become one of those horrible teachers that I'm talking about. So, uh, yeah, it was just the, the normal um, the normal sort of set of, of of comedy people that you would see back in the day. Little in the 
little enlarge. Yeah, I mean, you were just saying earlier on about um, you know the fact that it was on at six fifteen, and this is yeah. the running theme with with the Scarred for Life books is that you know there was stuff that was on when kids were watching TV back then that was absolutely terrifying, and 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 it's kind of less so now. Do you think kids are scared enough as as much as they should be these days, Reese? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know what world we're in anymore, to be honest, because you can see everything that you shouldn't ever see in, like saying, 15 seconds, you can see something that you should never have seen in your entire life and um, by accident. And so the world that we inhabited, it did feel like it was harder to accidentally see terrible things. But equally, it was it's also counterbalanced by the fact that it was all just on um, primetime television, all the, the, the threads and the, all the terrors that we were just given because we were living in the age of you're going to be in a nuclear war any minute, <laughs> which is the <laughs> way of living in the early in the 70s and 80s was how to take your bodies out. I mean, I'm obviously you've got all this in this, but that that in itself and the, and the, the air raid sirens and the, the fact you can go out your house and get electrocuted any any corner with these bollards and <laughs> it was a terrifying world we live in. I mean, and I don't know whether because I've had they're grown up now, but when my kids were little, I remember Mark saying because I would I would say, oh, I was quite Victorian, I wouldn't let them see anything, and he said it won't be. You can try all you like to stop them seeing horrible things, but it'll be something totally innocuous that they're left with that scars them for life. Like Mark was, it was. Um, picture of jesus on the cross his eyes raised up it was like it was just in the in the church and he, it haunted him terrified the one oh, in wow. carry you know and it's just in, it's you're allowed to see it so the picture it's a painting but the haunting image of these eyes of this jesus christ with the blood in his hands is the thing that marks take away of like can't bear looking at it and there's the odd little you know there's the odd depiction in a in Usborne Book of Ghosts or somewhere where it's not even the ghostly apparition that's painted, it's some other weird little thing. I was terrified of of Geth, or I, I call it Geth, it's Jeff the talking mongoose. And there's a little picture of that yeah. with its claws through the crack in the wall. But that, I cannot even look at it now, terrifying. Yeah, sorry, talking about kids being terrified, I don't think they are, I think they're desensitised because I, I teach kids maths and this kid said to me one day he said oh you gotta see this video on on the on, on the internet it's the funniest thing i've ever seen and it was a and steve knows what this is it's a a mexican drug cartel execution video oh. where these two guys get the heads chainsawed off no um uh, uh oh yeah and the chainsaw gets stuck it breaks down it's no. halfway halfway to the second guys now it was i couldn't get it out of my head for three days Three days. It'd be three months for me. Yeah, that's it, it was, awful. But they thought it was oh funny. Oh my god! Um, and I, I think, as you said, fifteen seconds. You can see. I mean, on Twitter or X as it is now, the, the uh, Twitter channels, whatever the accounts that, that follow the Ukraine war, you'll see pictures of soldiers being blown up. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, and um, you can see terrible real yeah. things. But I think our childhoods, again, getting back to the psychology, were far more psychological scares you know, the, the effects were especially effects weren't there to, to truly horrify you and everything but it's still worm between to your psyche psyche i think so. the imagination took over though yeah, Dave. It was, absolutely yeah. it was we filled in the blanks ourselves even though there's big cso lines around people's bodies but i which, just bought into it all which reminds me of another story i've told before i distinctly remember watching the seeds of doom where harrison chase falls into the the comp the compost maker at the end. And I remember the screams and the blood and the sound of shattering bones. None of that is there. Right. All of that was just in my mind. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, our, our minds filled in a lot of Absolutely. horror for us. Yeah. And I think a lot of our, of children's telly was very sophisticated. And, you know, and all the Nigel Neal stuff, it's all off camera and talked about. And, and it's very literary and you've got to sort of really fill in the blanks. And that, of course, is... The stuff of M.R. James, where you, it's the dread and the creeping up on you of the thing that's that that stays in your head because you've painted all the pictures and it isn't sort of blown by seeing it. You know, it's it, it's just sort of left to you to you to think what does what's this thing around the corner? I was just thinking today, watching the um, Phantom of the Opera, how quickly they show in the musical. I went to see the Phantom of the Opera today. 
how quickly they show, they show the Phantom. He's singing um, the Phantom of the Opera and taking her down on the gondola within about 10 minutes. And I thought, <laughs> this is enough. You keep him back. <laughs> Don't see him for ages. Have it's not aliens, is it? Talking? It's not aliens. Yeah. yeah. I thought, this is, he was showing the shark straight away with a half mask on and a rose. And you've got to keep him back. And then he would have had some... It'd be much more creepier, I think. But of course, people want to see him straight away. But although that's his first mistake, he shouldn't. He shouldn't even be in the first half. I'd keep him back. <laughs> you, you, you pay to see Phantom of the Opera. You want to see the Phantom, and also probably an opera as well. Yeah, you, know, I, you, you want those things. You, you pay for that. You so want. that's what you get. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, then, uh, Reese, let's have your second scar, please, if we could. Yeah, my second scar, um, not unsurprisingly, probably is. Um, Wurzel Gummidge and his handsome head. Hey, handsome head absolutely. Which Fantastic. is, um, obviously, you all know it. But I, and I, interestingly, I remembered it and thought, well, it's got to be that. But And I thought it was Posh Head. I thought it was called Posh Head. And I went and I looked, and he's called Handsome Head. And so, of course, Wurzel had all these different heads. I mean, <laughs> that was always a delight to me to see him swapping heads, just because it was like it just fell into the, the world of, of, of slightly ghoulish, horror like situation and of course it all is really disturbing um Wurzel Gummidge it's violent there's so much um in it that's like um zombie apocalypse I mean the, the trial of Wurzel Gummidge of course is one of the most terrible things you've ever seen when all these scarecrows come alive and are all walking sluggishly across the countryside to go and put him on trial but the posh head he, he, I've just seen it now for the first time. It's, it's uh, great, I've never isn't it? Like, oh my god, horrible! <laughs> it's Wurzel with so he's got this flat parted hair oh, right wow. down the middle, and he's got a little. <laughs> he's got white teeth that are like orange peel, but white, and he's got a monocle, and it, and it's just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> for some reason, Wurzel wants to have a handsome head. I think he thinks he can get. A, um, uh, attracts the ladies with it and then um, the crow man makes him this handsome head and he turns up at the house of uh, Joan Sim um, to have tea and that, uh, the most and, and the, the, she doesn't really know why he's there but he just she goes who else are you and he says I'm a, I think it's something like I'm a scarecrow man and I've come for my tea and cake <laughs> it's just like that horrible in itself I'm a scarecrow man anyway so she lets him in and um he sits down, just sort of makes himself at home. And then for some reason, Mr. Peters, who was also living there, makes him um, try to, I think he wants him to plug a light in, but he won't touch the electric wire because he's, he's terrified of the electric. Can't touch, can't touch electric. No, I don't like electric. And he won't touch the electric because he thinks he's going to set, be set on fire. <laughs> and that's horrible as well. And then he is he's sort of blown up. Jones Jones is there as well, and she she falls off the mattress, and um, so then that's the first encounter, and then the, the even worse is the second time he walks out with his handsome head, and he goes up to this what is like a depiction of like a crone. She's a scarecrow in a field, and he wants to woo her, and she wakes up, and he's got the posh head on, and um, she just cackles in his face in that really cruel way that Aunt Sally used to be horrible to him, but this is even worse and then she's cackling and laughing at him like no way in a million years i'm going to go out with you with that stupid head on and she starts beating him literally to pieces and his arms and legs fly out of the corner and his head flies off and and she's <laughs> crying with laughter and cackling like a witch and it's again quarter past six children television <laughs> uh, dave <laughs> yeah we, we were in liverpool we did a live show in liverpool uh, and we had a picture on screen of daft head right uh, if you know, and that one, that got a visceral reaction from a, a lady in the front row. Uh, and she was, she couldn't look at it. She could not look at Daft Head. Cover uh, the face. We have to yeah. take it off. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so. Yeah, it, it it's terrific. And I always, I always worried about his sentience. If he took his head off, why did his body just collapse on the floor? I was, I, I, used, to think, <laughs> I used to think about things like that. Yeah, the thing about the horror elements of. Um... Wesley Gummidge, we were talking about them because it is pure folk horror at yeah. times. I I don't know if you remember, Reese, but you, you probably will. The first episode when he comes to life properly yes. for the first yeah. time, yeah. and it's pouring with rain. There's crows cawing, and there's mud that's caked on his face, but it gets washed away by the rain. 
I took that clip, took the audio off and put it on my Twitter, with, replaced by the soundtrack to Zombie Flesh Eaters. But I had people underneath going, I don't remember the music being this. <laughs> because they just took it on uh, face they, value. <laughs> because it looks like a yeah, horror film. Absolutely, it is. It's complete. All right, they know what they were doing. It can't be by accident that some of them depict so it's too specific and you know what filming is like nothing is sort of by accident so it is it's a choice definitely to, and it is proper folk horror you're right there and there is so scary bits in it and um but and then sort of undercut with the sweetness of of wurzel but yeah there is a um a darkness to it all i think that's just sort of pervading in that the world that it creates and also the, the strange decision that they make about their heads when they come off they're no longer like him. They're much more rudimentary versions, and I remember mm. always being disturbed by that. Like, why has it changed? It's like some magic happens. That, but the rules of it are just that. That's what happens. It becomes a sort of simpler, simpler head. But uh, yeah, posh head. I'm going to call it posh head. I prefer it's a handsome head. That, that, that first episode though is a horror film. It's the, the car's going down a country lane, and the kid wants to pee, so he gets out and goes into. The, that is the start of a yeah, horror it's film. It's like the, then, as yeah. the episode of Amber House of Horror with the man in the yellow mac. Yes, yes, it is. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Timothy, the end, the, the the very ending to the first episode of the whole first episode has a completely different tone because it ends with the two kids jumping over the turnstile and they're coming to see Wurzel. And I think one of them, the little girl, says that scarecrow's going to cause us a lot of trouble right. in the future. But, you know, we're going to have fun with them. Then it cuts to Wurzel, who turns to the camera, looks at the audience, but without any jollity, with this pure malevolence, says, those kids are going to cause a whole lot of trouble. Something like, I'm going to have to keep my eye on those kids in the future. And you think, yeah. Jesus Christ. It, it's a really scary, eerie scene. <laughs> He's not quite the, the jolly innocent that it no. becomes. Maybe they thought, oh, we've got to change tack with how dark we're going to make this relationship. Yeah. It's weird that you say, uh, Reese, they know what they're doing. Like, it seems to come up quite a lot with some of this stuff in the 60s and 70s, or 70s and 80s, just like they're almost trying to properly scare kids on, on purpose. So I mean, there's definitely intent there, you think? I think there must be, yes. And, and of course, kids, I think, can... Maybe we underestimate them as well. I mean, you know, I don't know what children of today are like, but we were we were being not spoon fed in the way that I think we've maybe slipped into. So, you know, to watch Chucky or to watch um, the um, Sapphire and Steel, the stories are very sophisticated and, and and labyrinthine, and we were just expected to follow it and understand it. And, and Children of the Stones and the stone tape it's they weren't particularly for kids but i think yeah we were given stuff that i think they didn't they weren't shy of of thinking yeah this is this is going to be scary and dark and it, it didn't seem like there was a a threshold that they were working to it felt like all bets were off and you could just show anything and if it was scary so be it but maybe i mean maybe it was because we were kids and, and it was more scary than it was but you look at it now and think why were we allowed to see it it's so yeah the images are so sort of disturbing yeah. even now. I mean, not, and it isn't sort of retro specs that you look at it sometimes. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? You get people that you show stuff to that you think is disturbing and scarring for life, and they laugh at it. And people's have got different perceptions about what's what's scary and what what isn't. But of course, and I think Jeremy talked about it in his on his episode with you about how sometimes when you see something back. We couldn't look at it back and watch it and go, oh, it's just a man walking by with a stupid rubber um, pair of gloves on, you know. It was yeah. like a flash of it. And that was how it was meant to be seen. And that's so you're doing it a disservice to go, right, well, cold light today, me stop freeze framing it. It's rubbish. Well, yeah, it might be, but that's not the way we first saw it. It was on and it was gone and you never couldn't see it again. Yeah. And it's just in yeah. your mind, this image that grows and grows and becomes this other thing that scares you and, and and continues to scare you and obviously you're re-remembering all of it. It, it it turns it into something else turns it into a a nightmare uh reese can we get your third and final scar then please yes my third and final scar is a particular episode of the adventure game which was on oh and it was early i mean i don't know if people don't know it it was a, it was a, a sort of an 80s forerunner of Crystal Maze, 
So it was like, um, and it was all set on the planet Arg, and two celebrities and a real person, a, a normal human being, not in the <laughs> world, would be land would land on the planet, and they would have to do various trials. And then the last part was the vortex, where they had to get across this thing, and this other invisible. Um, sort of vaporizer was also coming toward them and they had to not walk into the shape of the vaporizer. But one of the rounds during the whole thing was someone in the, um, on the team was a mole and they had to eliminate who they thought was actually trying to obstruct the whole um, winning of the game with actually trying, you know, you had to be clever with how you kept it hidden that you were the mole. And the particular episode i remember that literally scarred me it's the worst of the scarring it's good i've saved it to last was graham garden was on it of the good his dr graham garden and he was accused of being the mole and it wasn't him and i knew it was and we you know it is so you're watching the person getting away with it and it the injustice of it because i remember him like being so sad it's horrible <laughs> he'd been brilliant and really helpful to the game and he's standing there and he had to, and the way that they got them, they accused them and then they were vaporized and they vanished. And last thing he said before he was accused, so they all they said, We think it's you. He said, But I'm innocent, I tell you. <laughs> and then he vanished <laughs> with his paper. And I remember he, he literally scarring me and I, I nearly cried. Oh, but I'm innocent, I tell you. Isn't that weird? The injustice, oh. more than anything it was the else, Scotty. The injustice of because I liked Graham Garden anyway, and it was just it was like they killed him. <laughs> they sort of had to. <laughs> and I remember meeting him. I, we we met wow. them. We met the goodies, and I talked to him about this, and he said, "Yes, I'm still scarred about it. I, I feel the injustice." <laughs> and I love that he, he remembered, and it was a thing for him even. That was it. You've just reminded me. That was that thing of there was a small spate of those kind of game show with effects kind of thing then um the game show nightmare yeah. for kids that would have the the kid with the helmet on and the the three kids who would be watching on the screen but they would fall foul of traps they would kind of it was very basic effects obviously but they would fall off a precipice and fall yes. to their deaths or one of the, the the death counter if they ran out of food or starved was the human head where the bits of yeah. skin would fall off revealing a skeletal face, and then the eyes would roll towards we the had, um as they died. We had a lad in our school, this is honestly true, called Dick and Hares. That was his actual name, Dick and Hares. And as if, as if that wasn't <laughs> enough of being a legend, oh, I swear bless. to God he's called Dick and Hares. And he then ended up, he went on, on nightmares, as if like your your position of wow. legacy is not in, 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 enshrined enough being, having a name like that you can't even shorten. Wow. You want to try and book a table or order a pizza, and then you go on nightmare as well. So it's like double legend status for him. God yeah. bless him. Did he? Did no, he, he lost? Oh. God bless him. Hard, yeah. Hardest game show. It on, was. On yeah, it was. Uh, Dave. I watched the adventure game recently, and I part of the game is to work out the, the value of yes, the coins. Yes, the whole Drogner business. And I, yeah, and I worked it out in about five seconds flat. You know, just coincidentally, and they couldn't find it for twenty minutes. And it drove me around the twist. I was probably sitting there. <laughs> Fifty-eight-year-old man screaming at the telly, saying, "For God's sake, it's just—it's the position of the, the colour in the this the spectrum times by the number of sides." It's yeah, your mass seat. You know, but, no. That's a good point. Yes, that is true. <laughs> that is go. that is true. Yeah, but I just uh, it drove me around the twist. But you know, the uh, people getting vaporised. I think uh, favourite TV stars being vaporised on a week by week basis was not a good good thing for me yeah. either. Yeah. Well, I did me first escape room real life escape room a few weeks ago with my girlfriend, new girlfriend, she's Polish. All I could ever think was I'm in the adventure game. Right. I'm buzzing. Because <laughs> it was it was like being in the adventure game. She had no frame of reference so she didn't understand what I was getting so excited yeah. about. But I was kind of picking up the puzzles and trying to put stuff together and thinking, I feel like Duncan Goodhue or like he's yes, a frame yeah. garden and the, the, there wasn't, it, the threat for that one was we'd been kidnapped and put oh, in a right. cabin. And the kidnapper was going to come back and chop us up. So we had an hour to go before the kidnapper comes back. But it was just for me, it was exactly the same as the, um, what was it called? The vaporizing beam at the the end of the... Uh, the vortex. Game. You had that lovely lattice. Yeah, the vortex. The vortex, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was with this yeah. episode, it was Carol Shell. You know, the play school, she was the one that accused him. And it, that oh, was yeah. another betrayal. Oh, yeah. 
terrible. <laughs> Another person oh, you trust. Oh, she, she was, was lovely. Yes, it was all just the world yeah. slipping through my fingers. It was like, this, this is just monstrous. And it was all done before I even had my tea. And then I was back to school. It was like, I've been trying to recoup. I'd convalesce. Well, well, there we go. Your your three scars, Reese. Uh, number one, two Ronnie's teeny Todd. Number two, Wurzel Gummidge handsome head, which I'd actually not seen before. Uh, so that will terrify me for the rest of my life. And number yep. three, the adventure game, <laughs> the false accusation. Uh, Reese, it's been fantastic to have you on. What, what's coming up next? I know, obviously, you're, you're, you've just said earlier on you're working on the the ninth series or season of Inside Number Nine. Any other projects you've got on the horizon? Um, there's a few things that will come out that I can't talk about yet, but um, yeah, we're going to do number nine, and then maybe we've got um, talk of a live uh, play version of number nine. So that would be the next. It won't go away for a while oh, wow. because we've got uh, plans to do a sort of live version of it uh, somehow on stage. So that'd be exciting. So we've got to sort of embrace the fact that it's it's live in whatever way we can to make it different again from the the TV. So. Um, yeah, more anthology on stage, probably. Amazing. Well, it's been an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. Uh, Reese Shearsmith, thank you so much for talking to Sky oh, for Life. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, there you go. That's it for this week. Thank you again to Reese Shearsmith. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. We want you to get in touch with us. Share your fears and your scars too uh, at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, Scarred for Life book on Instagram, or contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. 